Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's one minute past nine. Coming up to two minutes past nine, or oh, eventually. <laughs> You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. You may be listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton, and joining me by Skype this morning is Kate Bells. Hey, Kate. How are you doing? Hey, Bron. Look, I'm doing well. I learnt a, um, what is it, a face mask lesson this week. Yeah. Uh, if you're hungry and you need something to eat, just quickly, whatever you do, don't buy calamari rings, <laughs> eat them, and then go home and a day later put your mask on because it stinks. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I had paid the price for that one. Um, rookie area. I'm sure there's a whole lot of foods that are smelly that you shouldn't be just slipping in while you're out. But, oh, yeah. Just a note for listeners. That's a cracker. I reckon there's a ton of face mask stories out there and the classic one, of course, and I did this this morning, is you just get so used to them and then the next thing you're having a drink of something and then in it goes through the face mask, which is <laughs> what I did with my coffee this morning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So many stories. But, yeah, that one's particularly ripe. Yes, oh. but we're getting used to it. It's becoming part of life now, isn't it? It so is. The keys, wallet, face mask, sunnies, how'd you go? <laughs> it's the fourth item on the list. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Tim, very, very much for a very lovely edition of Vital Bits. Uh, he did bring out the big guns today with Nick Drake. I think we had a Julie London double play, um, some giant sand in there. Echo and the Bunnymen to finish. Uh, it's like he had my very own playlist right there. So thank you, Tim. Um, and, of course, you can catch him next Saturday at 6am for another six hours of Vital bits and why wouldn't you today oh, but Brian just yep. quickly yep. I was listening to him yesterday morning and I turned around and said to my wife I'm like I would love Tim to DJ my hangover <laughs> yeah we well, <he> kind of <laughs> does <laughs> and it's what he's been doing for so long but it was just perfect he nails it every time yeah and then we come in and spoil it so sorry out there if you're nursing <laughs> nursing a little gentle head this morning we'll try and keep it mellow for you um we have a very big show uh shortly we will be catching up with dave donnelly uh the big news of the week um biggest uh, stranding of whales in Australia's history. So more than 450 long fin pilot whales became stranded in Strawn, which is sort of on the north, more the mid, I suppose, coast of Tasmania, west coast, midwest coast. Uh, and so we'll be speaking with Dave about this particular stranding and this particular area because it does seem to be prone to whale strandings, but also just more about them, the circumstances behind them in general and this latest tragedy in particular, and also the efforts that are involved to get these whales back out to sea. So 450 whales suddenly washed up on the beach. And, um, you know, Strawn's not exactly... Uh, close to anywhere significant in terms of suddenly being able to to galvanise huge numbers of people. So um, I'll have a chat with Dave too, but he's highly experienced in whale rescues and in dealing with stranding. So um, we'll spend some time speaking with Dave about that. Uh, we are then going to cross to Perth. So we're going to go from whales to pufferfish. Uh, Todd Bond is from the University of Western Australia's Oceans Institute. He's also affiliated with the Australian Institute of Marine Science. Uh, sciences and 
There's been a discovery on the uh, sort of northernish coast of Western Australia in very deep waters of what's thought to be a brand new species of pufferfish. And where this is uh, quite interesting, particularly for us, I mean, all new species discoveries are interesting, but Kate, you know those, um, those, that particular species of pufferfish that's normally found, well, it's only found in Japan, and it creates those incredible kind of geometric, geometric circle patterns as part of its courtship. I do. Last night I actually did some homework and watched the um, snippet from, from the Blue Planet. Yeah. Of the work that goes into it. It's phenomenal. It's absolutely fascinating. And then they spend pretty much every kind of moment of their lives maintaining it. And the whole purpose of it is to try and attract, attract a female mate. So until now it's been thought that the only species of pufferfish in the world that does this is in Japan. But we may have our version, Cade. So... It's super exciting. It's very exciting. I'm very happy that you lined up this interview, Bron. <laughs> we mentioned it last week as a, as a news item and I thought, no, we've got to follow this one up because this is really super exciting. And then um, Jeff Maynard, oh, so exciting. Look, he's decided that what we really now, what Melbourne needs now is a party and, uh, yes, we agree, Jeff. And um, these are the words he sent through to me. We can't go to the beach, so we're bringing the swingingest, grooviest, way out, daddy-o beach party to lockdown. <laughs> Lacquer up the bouffant, bust out the longboard and spread out the beach blanket. <laughs> uh, pitching beach bonfires and go-go dancing, yep. polka dot bikinis. Clam bakes. Yep. I, think, I think it might be, uh, I'm, I'm tipping it might be beach blanket bingo, but we'll find out. So, yes, very <laughs> exciting. Um, and a heap of news as well. The only other thing I wanted to mention is Wednesday is the final day of Radiothon for 2020. It's been an absolute blast. So joyful for us as, as broadcasters to see and hear all your subscriptions coming through. You do have another four days, including today, to subscribe and be in the running for all the prizes apart from the daily prizes that are just for trip for um, for Radiothon in terms of the, you know, when we call in that 10-day period. But the major prizes are all up for grabs. So if you want to um, – if you haven't subscribed yet, rrr.org.au, don't call <laughs> – we still have some fish names. I've got a couple of yours oh, we still. Do. Yeah, we do. So if you do that between now and 10 o'clock, don't care what program you want to nominate, we'll give you a fish name because we've still got some. Yeah, and everybody wants a fish name. Uh, of course. Hmm. <laughs> Who doesn't want a fish name? All right, yeah. let's have a look at today's weather. In fact, the week's weather, you've got that there, I believe, Cade. I do. Look, top today of 14, but don't let that dishearten you. It's absolutely gorgeous out there at the moment. The um, wind's just going to get lighter as the day goes on, so make sure you get out to your nice little nature spot and enjoy it if you can. Tomorrow's going to be similar, top of 15, nice clear day with some light southerlies. Um, bumping up to 21 on Tuesday with the wind swinging around to the north, and it's pretty much going to stay northerly for the rest of the week. And going to hang around that sort of 20-degree sort of mark until it bumps up to about 24 on Friday. So this is spring for you. We had, what, 12 and snow everywhere yesterday, and we'll be hitting 24 on Friday. So I love this time of year. It's nothing better than the variability that you get. But for those that can get into the water, there's about four or five foot of surf on the surf coast today. Um, looks like there's... 
it's a little bit choppy from the winds that we've been having but look you know those that know will be able to find a place to get out of the wind and get a good wave and it looks like there's actually going to be a bit of swell around for the rest of the week so with some northerlies coming in conditions are probably going to be pretty nice for everyone who can do it so keep those photos coming through and inspire us and remind us what we've got to look forward to and for those that are relying on the tide we had a high this morning at 7:45, so the tide is dropping with a low of 12:20. so make the most of the weather that we've got enjoy spring and what would have been grand final day yesterday is that how it works last yeah. day in september yeah yeah, yeah. It'll happen it's 2020 it's all over the place <laughs> it's the pre-season to 2021 that's what i've decided <laughs> Uh, uh, now, yeah. I believe you have a couple of uh, bits of news there, Kate. I do. Look, one that I really wanted to get to is, again, so much stuff has moved online, which is fantastic because you don't have to leave your house to get to things. Okay, you miss out on the socialising bit, but you are able to make things that you perhaps wouldn't be able to otherwise. And one of them is the Victorian Nature Festival. And as part of the Victorian Nature Festival, Remember the Wild is presenting the Day by the Bay Festival. So this starts on the 28th of September and goes through to Sunday the 11th. 11th of October. Now, I'm just going to do a quick rundown of some of the events here, Bron, and you can mentally tick off the ones you want to go to. So we've got Frogs of the Port Phillip Catchment. We've got Shoreline Nature, Nature Journaling, which unfortunately is already sold out. Wild Stories from the West, Help Save Sam the Sea Dragon. We've got Virtual Fish Counts. We've got Brain on Nature Guided Field Sound Recordings. We've got Screening of Blue. We've got For the Love of Seaweed, Sustainable Fishing Workshops, Snorkeling from Your Lounge, Meeting Our Migratory Shorebirds. We've got Showcasing Victoria's Marine Science, which I'm a part of through AMSA. We've got six of the leading scientists around Victoria and Australia talking about their work. We've got um, and. My favourite is the Splendid Southern, Splendid Southern Sea Slugs Clay Workshop, Ooh. where you'll be sent out some clay and be making your own sea slugs. Oh. And as you're making them, you'll learn about all the bits and pieces and what they do. When's that one on? That one is on Saturday the 10th of October from 2 to 3 o'clock. Places are limited. So get on board. So jump online. Um, the tickets are through Humanitix, but if you just type into the Victorian Nature Festival um, and look for the Day by the Bay Festival, and that's where all the tickets are. So a whole lot of things going on for that week, so you can basically keep yourself busy and your kids busy over school holidays too. Fantastic. That is, yes. Now, look, have we got enough time for a, a quick uh, frivolous bit of news, Bron? I always have time for frivolous news, Cade. All right. Do you want to hear about the animal with an anus that comes and goes? Could reveal how's owl evolved. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. So, you know comb jellies? Yes. So the ones that have that sort of striding, like rainbow patterns around them, mm. they're sort of, sort of beating. They're beautiful. Every, most people have probably seen them when they've been out in the water. They don't have a permanent anus. Right. Um, I didn't know this. But what actually happens is that they'll basically eat their food and it's when um, – only when the animal is actually defecating does a tiny opening appear and then it disappears straight away afterwards. Wow. So someone's actually looked under a microscope watching for it to happen and it poops and then the anus disappears. So what it's suggesting is there's no permanent connection between the gut and the rear of the body. So basically as waste accumulates, that part of the gut starts to balloon out a little bit and then once it touches the outer layer of the epidermis, it basically opens, it excretes, and then it shuts back up and it was like it was never there. I'm glad we don't have an anus like that, Kay. That could be really inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> would, 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 
I mean, how would you go putting a nappy on a kid? I'm just picturing people on trams. Like, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> like it was designed that way. Yeah. So what it's done is it's actually sent this researcher off on a um, journey to try and find other species of comb jellies to see if they have permanent anuses, and most of them do. So, like, I don't know whether you'd be upset or rejoice when you found that they did have a permanent one. Oh, I reckon I'd rejoice. It's, it's such a novel, interesting thing and, you know, of course then leads to a whole bunch of questions about evolution. I, I just, what a wonderful story. It is, it is. And you can find that in invertebrate biology. So it's a scientific paper. This is not just something that's been made up. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Fluctuating anuses. Who would have thought? Thanks, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we've had a couple of subscribers, then we must get to a track. Um, Daniel Reed from Preston, new an artist subscription. Oh, good on you, Daniel. And um, Daniel, you can be a WHO, so that's the World Health Organization, white striped and a mini. And um, Daniel uh, sends a message. He says, if you could mention my new comic, The Mycelium Complex, oh, cool, is available on Kickstarter. That would be awesome. Love the station, especially on weekends. Thank you, Daniel. That's awesome. And also, oh, Gemma Peck. I know Gemma. Hi, Gemma. Thank you. From Collingwood, renewing to Radio Marinara. And um, I better find one for you. I'll find you one. from. This is from Captain Trash's list. Um, you are the uh, the doctor told me to say, arr. <laughs> Zebra top <laughs> shell. <laughs> I hope you like that one, Gemma. Okay, it is 9.19. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Now, this week, the Marinara team was very much saddened to see the mass stranding of more than 450 long-finned pilot whales near Strawn on Tasmania's northwest coast. It's the largest recorded mass stranding event in Australia's history. So what causes whale strandings? Are there any common circumstances behind them? What were the circumstances of this latest tragedy in particular and what's involved in rescue efforts to get them back out to sea? Who better to ask than our go-to whale expert, Dave Donnelly. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Kate, and good morning, Bron. Great to have you here. Look, truly distressing footage this week, and I can only guess how distressing it was for wonderful people like you who spend your lives working and studying whales. It must have been pretty hard for you to see. Yeah, of course it is. It's really tricky. You know, it's um, no one likes to see animals in distress, um, particularly those that you're passionate about. And as you've mentioned, you actually study. Um, it's even more frustrating to not be able to lend a hand to those groups, uh, much like our firefighters always collaborate internationally and statewide, uh, sorry, nationwide, so too whale strandings can attract that same sort of collaboration. Unfortunately, due to COVID, we weren't, uh, no one was able to come down from Victoria to, to lend a hand. And would that normally have happened? Uh, certainly it has happened in the past. I personally attended a stranding in uh, 2009 of 48 sperm whales where we, uh, we flew down and uh, provided as much assistance as you can for a sperm whale stranding and, and others like myself have also travelled to Tasmania to assist with necropsies in particular. Now, you've been involved in many rescues that date back literally decades. I wasn't actually aware of this until you and I had a conversation during the week. Um, can you talk us through some of your experiences in attending whale strandings and helping with rescues? What's involved? Um, well, I guess the first thing we need to understand with these events is no two events are the same. Um, there might be similarities, but there's always more differences than there are similarities. 
Um, for, for me personally, uh, it's about the interest of, of learning, um, hoping to be able to refloat animals, of course, but in most cases that's not the right thing to be done um, for, from an animal welfare point of view. So there's a whole range of different levels of decision-making, there's a whole range of different people involved, and of course you've got the animals themselves, and there's a whole lot of risk involved as well. So, you know, it's really hard to give a broad brush on this, um, except to say everyone's there for the same reason, animal welfare. It's not necessarily to save the whales, it's to give the whales the best chance that they have to survive, or if the decision floats the other way, <laughs> pardon the pun, um, uh, then euthanasia obviously is a more kind approach as we would do for our pets. Kay, just jump in if you have any questions. I can't see you, so <laughs> just feel free yeah, to jump no, in. No, you're right. I actually just wondered, what do we know about pilot whales, like so population-wise um, and just general sort of biology, ecology, that makes them sort of prone to this? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a good question, Kate. Um, the, the Southern Hemisphere is a very, very broad place, and it's all, unlike the Northern Hemisphere, it's all interlinked. There's no land masses to create barriers between the ice caps and the, uh, and the equator. So um, it's a very, very big area to try and get a population estimate for a species which is wide-ranging and highly mobile. Um, some estimates say numbers in a uh, hundreds of thousands or the low hundreds of thousands for long-fin pilot whales, but really it's a, it's a guesstimate. I don't know what science is behind that estimate. From the biology point of view, we know that these animals are pelagic in that they are in the pelagic zone. They're off the continental shelf break usually in a sort of 800,000 metres plus. But in some locations, the, uh, the coast and the continental shelf are relatively close. So you do sometimes get them closer to shore, perhaps following prey or their normal migratory patterns. But they are highly social species because they are a dolphin, in fact. They're not a whale, they're a dolphin. Um, <laughs> the boffins can argue what a whale is. And uh, in that case, they are highly social. They're very well connected. Most of the animals may well spend their entire lives together. And at certain times, they may come together in what we call, refer to as superpods. And this might be one of those occasions and these animals have ended up in a uh, yeah precarious position, to say the least. Um, Dave, what do we know about the situation in Strawn this week? How did that come about? Uh, look, this is, again, an interesting one. I, of course, I wasn't present, so I can't speak to, uh, to all the facts and figures, but what I can say is my contact with uh, uh, incident controllers and others who were on the site at the time, uh, it seems like this is a repeat of many, many other similar events in that area. Um, the area of Strawn and the coastline of Strawn and that north coast um, sort of has a geographical hook in it, if you like, um, and it's what we referred to as a whale trap. Um, this location has, a, has attracted many, many, many mass strandings, mostly of uh, longfin pilot whales and sperm whales, but also some bottlenose dolphins. Um, so the geographical feature here seems to be playing a part in these events over time and historical records even fossil records suggest that mass strandings have been happening for many 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 hundreds perhaps thousands and thousands of years so we shouldn't look at this as something that we're trying to look for answers to in terms of anthropogenic influences but looking at it from a biological ecological point of view that this is a whale trap this is a, a trap for animals that are struggling to navigate in an unfamiliar environment how they got there in the first place is sort of anyone's guess they could have been following prey it could have been a, a particular current um, it could be related to climate change over time as well there's a whole range of possibilities um, and another one is when one animal gets into trouble typically others because they're social um, very, very highly social 
um, a way of life, they tend to help each other out. So if one's struggling, you'll find that others assist, and that can result in a mass stranding. But all these things could play a part, or it may be none of them. You've got some um, friends and some colleagues who've been on site throughout the rescue effort this week. How are they all travelling? I'm assuming they must be exhausted. Yeah, look, I spoke to um, a very close friend of mine yesterday and as she just returned from the site, absolutely exhausted, living in a tent uh, in, the, in the water for about nine hours a day uh, in a wetsuit, handling animals which are in the vicinity of around about a tonne to a tonne and a half, maybe a little bit more uh, as adults. Uh, difficult situations, lots of rain, lots of wind, which is good for the whales, bad for the rescuers. Um, and, of course, uh, my, my colleague who works in the, in the management of wildlife in that region, just exhausted, um, pressured by media, pressured by innuendos and, and speculation on social media, which interferes with the operations. It makes life hard for those people who are trying to do the right job. So if I've got a message for anybody out there on social media who wants to run a commentary on these sort of events, please, please, please be thoughtful and, and uh, consider how that flow-on effect goes through the media and then, of course, to the area managers and then, of course, their attention to detail at the site. It's really, really important. Yeah, and maybe a bit more helpful if people want to help in any way that, what, I mean, what can they do? What, what would be a good thing for people to do if they want to sort of have some positive impact on what's happening there? Um, look, with, with, uh, with whale strandings, uh, the, the best thing that you can do, really, if you're a skilled person, you're fit, you have some knowledge of whales and dolphins, do, do the training. Orca, an organisation in New South Wales, offer whale stranding training. Um, so too does Wires in Victoria, uh, sorry, in Tasmania. Um, and they play a key role in that volunteer aspect. That means that the managers are going to a source with the, which they know are skilled, trained, and ready to go. Um, just showing up on site to take photos and to try and get involved is kind of a bit more hindrance than anything else. Um, and of course, if you're a, if, if if you're a social media type person, um, just presenting or sharing the facts rather than speculating, I think all of those things are, would be really helpful. Yeah, and a good good um, bit of old fashioned fundraising is never going to go astray either. With groups that are sort of always sort of at the ready to go out there and help as well, uh, I'm assuming that that they'd be relatively easy to find. Yeah, as I mentioned, Orca is one group in New South Wales. Um, and uh, they get some funding from government grants and, of course, wires down in Tasmania. Um, they're always really good to support regardless because uh, not just whale strandings, but things like koala rescues and native wildlife being hit on roads. They're always a good thing to, to generate a few funds towards to help us um, try and minimise our impact as humans on the environment, whether it be at the top of a mountain or, or on the coastline. It's, uh, it's, it's a great way to help our native fauna. Um, Dave, just before we let you go, just a couple of last questions. Are there any rail, whales left to rescue? Uh, or where are, where's the rescue effort at now? Uh, the rescue effort is now at its biggest stage, believe it or not. Um, there's 300-plus carcasses in an estuary which has an aquaculture farming oh. um, industry. Uh, so, of course, now the pressure comes from that industry to try and not um, influence the survivorship of those animals or those fish that are in the pens. So removal of 300 carcasses at about six metres long and a tonne to a tonne and a half each is a big, big job with a lot of pressure. So that job is still to come and is probably starting to happen about now. Um, the last animals were, last live animals were put out to sea yesterday. A total of about 108 animals were removed, which is an absolutely remarkable effort considering the conditions and the size of the animals uh, and the pressure. Um, now, hopefully those animals do well. 
Some may restrand, but hopefully they go back out to sea and they have been marked so they'll know whether or not they do come back to the coast. Dave, I just had a quick one for you. One of the term, bit of terminology I saw was that they had to bury some at sea. How do you bury something at sea? That's a very good question, Kate. I hadn't seen that quote. Um, look, I, I think I'm as ma- about as much in the dark as you are on that one. But uh, look, um, whales and dolphins have a blubber layer. We all know that. It keeps them uh, uh, well thermoregulated in sea. Uh, so they're quite buoyant. Um, so I don't want to go into too much detail about what I think that burial at sea. But you're assuming they send them to the bottom? I think they, they've either dropped them to the bottom um, with or weighted or they may have uh, been purged. Is that a good word to use? That'll do. <laughs> I really don't know the answer. That's, that's a management question, uh, not, not for me to speculate on. Dave, we're going to have to move on. Um, we have uh, Todd Bond waiting for us in Perth to talk about this brand new species of pufferfish. Um, I did, well, hopefully, um, I, I did want to talk to you about the East Coast migrations, but I might leave that because um, I don't want to keep Todd waiting. But in the next couple of weeks, I'll catch up with you on the uh, the East Coast migrations of humpbacks and southern right whales because, of course, this seems to be peak whale watching season if you're on the, particularly on the New South Wales south coast. So uh, we'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks to talk more about that then, if that's okay. Absolutely. And some very exciting things developing on the East Coast in terms of the ecology of humpback whales on this migration season. So very excited to talk to you about that, Bron, and by that time I'll have more information. Brilliant. We'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Dave. Good on you guys. Thanks a lot for today. Catch you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Dave Donnelly there from Killer Whales Australia and Dolphin Research Institute talking about the whale strandings in Strawn. It's 9.32. You're listening to Radio Marinara. Very quick piece of news and then we'll play a very quick track and then speak with Todd Bond. Um, this one passed. I couldn't let this go another week, Kate. It's uh, it's a <laughs> really every now and then you get a great press release that comes across and you think, oh, this is great. There's extremely rare fossils of ancient sea life found in Tasmania that has been named after Tom Baker, um, also known as the uh, the fourth Doctor from Doctor Who. And the reason for this is the uh, the paleontologist who made this discovery is a huge Doctor Who fan. And when he discovered, <laughs> even the story behind him discovering this, it's actually some trilobites uh, that were found in the late 1990s. So they were actually found some time ago, but uh, it's it's taken a while till they've got to the point of actually naming the species. And so this, uh, the co-author, Dr. Ibach, who first found them in the late 90s, said he was caught short driving through Guns Plains in Tasmania. Whilst relieving myself on a convenient boulder, I noticed that it was covered in trilobites. And <laughs> he says, paleontologists, discover fossils in the most surprising ways. So uh, these trilobites are dated from the Paleozoic era, so about 450 million years ago. And being such a massive Whovian, he decided to name it after Tom Baker. So this particular fossil, she says, looking for the name of it, is called uh, Gravicalamine Bakeri. And the, the best part of this whole press release, Cade, is the response from Tom Baker himself, who says he was thrilled to hear the news that an ancient and incredibly rare specimen has been named in his honour. And a quote from him, I'm delighted to be entitled at last. I hope the Who world will share my joy. Will I be allowed to tack fossil on official correspondence? I hope the Who world will celebrate this fresh honour and will spread the news to those who live in remote places. Happy days to all the Who fans everywhere, says Tom Baker. So there you go. I thought you might enjoy that one, Kate. I certainly did. It made my week.
You've got more chance of having a fossil named after you if you're like in Star Wars or Doctor Who than being a scientist. <laughs> yes, you do indeed. Oh, I, I just love that story. And um, sending that one out to uh, Rob Jan and to Richard Watts, who I know are big Whovians and uh, hope you enjoyed that story. Now, you might be familiar with the footage shown in various documentaries, uh, Blue Planet included, of the courtship behaviour of the white-spotted pufferfish, where male pufferfish make spectacular large geometric circular patterns in the sand in order to attract a female to hopefully mate with. Well, until recently, it was thought that that behaviour was specific to only the white-spotted pufferfish off islands southwest of Japan. But recent routine monitoring has revealed similar sand patterns off the northern coast of Western Australia, and it now looks like we might have our very own answer to the white-spotted pufferfish right here in Australia. So to tell us more, let's cross to Perth now to speak with lead scientist Todd Bond from the University of Western Australia's Oceans Institute. Good morning, Todd. Good morning, how are you going? Well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, I'm well. Great. Hey, thanks for joining us. I know you're camping this weekend and I'm very happy to hear that you've got to a place with some good reception. Yeah, a little walk from the campsite, but uh, the sun's out now, which is a bit nicer and, uh, yeah, got some got some good reception to talk to you. Excellent. Now, these patterns, uh, just to be clear, we don't have some sort of elaborate underwater crop circle type host uh, hoax going on here, do we? Potentially, potentially, yeah. It's a bit strange finding it in such deep water, but uh, no, we're we're fairly confident that it uh, is from pufferfish. Uh, they're very similar to the ones that have been found off Japan. So, yes, most likely it is it is from the pufferfish themselves. Yeah, I guess. And if there was any doubt that maybe this was a hoax, you wouldn't have had this research published in the Journal of Fish Biology. So, um, we'll mention that one well as well. And congratulations on that too. For that yeah, publication, yeah. So, yeah, uh, as I've just described it briefly, um, can you tell us a little bit more about these sand circles that um, and the ones that are created by the Japanese pufferfish, but also these new ones that you've discovered? Yeah, so the ones that were found in Japan um, are believed to be the nests of male uh, pufferfish. They, the males build them over the course of about a week. Um, and they were described in, in 2011, um, so a little while ago now. And to our knowledge, they haven't been found anywhere else in the world. In Japan, they're found in about 30 metres of water, um, so divers were able to go down and, and uh, describe how the pufferfish were actually making these circles. Um, but, yeah, we stumbled across these on in about 130 metres of water off the northwest shelf of WA. So they're quite similar to the ones that we find in Japan. Uh, so they're a little bit smaller. They're about 1.4 to 1.6 metres in diameter. Um, and they have a, a, a bunch of ridges around the outside. Uh, the male will, will create these elaborate circles and then it's thought that the female will come and lay her eggs in the centre center of these circles. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess, what we found on the northwest shelf. Uh, it's, it's quite different from the ones in Japan as it's about 5,500 kilometres away from them to begin with um, and it's in quite deep water, so uh, 130 to 137 metres. Um, so yeah, a fair bit deeper. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I was going to ask you about... You know, how do you know that it's not the actual Japanese species that's come across here, maybe via ballast water or something like that? But is it the the, the actual patterns of those circles plus the, the huge difference in the water depth? Is that sort of what's leading you to think that this is actually our own version? Oh, look, it definitely could be the species that we find in Japan, so Alba maculata. It definitely could be that. Um, there's a, so Alba maculata, or the white-spotted puffer, hasn't been found in Western Australia or in Australia at all. Um, but that's not saying that it can't uh, occur here. But 
We ultimately we don't know, so we need to go down and, and collect a specimen or get some very high resolution footage of the uh, puffer fish making these circles, and then we'll have a better idea of what it actually is. So, yeah, deep, working in this deep water can be particularly difficult, um, and you know, collecting a fish that's only eight centimetres long can also be particularly difficult. Um, I've got Cade with me um, via Skype as well. Cade, just jump in if you have a question. I was just going to say, oh, hi, Todd, it's Cade here, as Bron said. Look, just curious with this um, work that you're doing out there, um, Bron described it as routine, but I'm guessing anything that um, a diver can't get to is anything but routine. Were you able to sort of get any um, incidental footage of pufferfish or suspected sort of pufferfish doing that work? Yeah, so I guess it's kind of important to note that this video footage was collected um, by the oil and gas industry. So on the northwest shelf of WA, there's a, a plethora of, of infrastructure um, associated with oil and gas in, uh, extraction. And so these remotely operated vehicles or ROVs will routinely go down there and inspect this footage, uh, inspect this infrastructure. And it was that video footage that I was actually looking at. So it wasn't designed to go uh, out there and survey fish. It was designed to go out there and survey infrastructure. Uh, but we were looking at it for, for fish and, and what fish we were finding on it. Um, so, yeah, it, it, scientists don't routinely get out there but engineers and the oil and gas companies uh, are out there all the time um, surveying their infrastructure and, and surveying parts of the Northwest Shelf. And it's a, it's a, I guess this is a really good example of how scientists and in industry have come together. You know, they have thousands and thousands of hours of footage collected on the Northwest Shelf, and a lot of the times it's underutilised by scientists like myself. Whereabouts is it, um, Todd? So if we're kind of picturing the West Australian coast, whereabouts yep. would it be? Okay, so if you know where Ningaloo is, um, so where the coastline goes up WA and it hits Ningaloo, it kind of takes a, a sharp uh, right and it, and it heads up northeast. Um, and it's about 160 kilometres off the coast of Dampier or Carafa. Um, so I don't know if you guys know Port Headland or anywhere like that. It's, it's between Exmouth and Broome, I guess. Right. So a very remote part of WA. Yeah. What was that moment like? So you're looking at the footage and you've suddenly seen these circles. What was that moment like when you realised that something was potentially there? All of a sudden, all the David Attenborough documentaries <laughs> made sense. Because, <laughs> you know, it, it, we wouldn't know about this. It, it's quite an obscure little paper. I mean, it's very rare for any scientist to read this around the world, but it was truly because of BBC that we knew what these structures looked like. And so when me and a, and a colleague stumbled across them, it was like, well, this is actually pretty cool. Oh, it's so cool. And it's that sort of thing, you know, just to realise that we've, you know, most likely got our version of um, of what was thought to only exist in one place in the world. That depth difference when you're talking about 30 metres of water versus 130 metres of water, like what are the, uh, to me it's, I don't, I'm not a fish biologist, but it's such a greatly, you know, it's a huge difference in depth. The, the likelihood yeah. of being the same species would have to be pretty small, I would have thought. Yeah, look, it, it, it is a big difference and a lot happens between that 30 metres and 130 metres. You know, we lose light, uh, temperature starts to drop, although... I must say the temperature in 130 metres on the northwest shelf is 26 degrees. Well, it can be, so it can be quite warm. Um, but yeah, it's a very it's a very hostile environment. Um, 
back, you know, in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, this area had uh, amazing and large sponge gardens. And unfortunately, a lot of those have disappeared due to, due to trawling and historic trawling. A lot of that stopped now. Um, but uh, it, it's an environment that's quite muddy and quite silty, and it has uh, high high velocity currents. So. You know, it, it, you can understand why these puffer fish are actually making this nest. They live in an environment where there's not much structure, uh, there's high currents, and so they need to create a nice little nest where they can where they can lay the eggs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it is a very hostile environment, and, and not only for fish, but you know, for us to get down there and, and do this type of work is, is very difficult. Yeah. So what's the next step in the research, James? You were saying, um, Todd, sorry, you were saying you were um, going to uh, try and get, um, obviously, get a fish to try and identify. How are you going to go about doing that? Yeah, so I guess there's two ways. There's, there's something that we can start right now, and that's um, talking to the oil and gas operators out there and, and uh, letting the ROV operators know, the guys that fly the, the submarine-type machines down there, to keep an eye out, not only for the circles, but also for puffer fish as well. So so start off creating a bit of an awareness that we do actually want to find this puffer fish and, and what it is and get more records of it. And then secondly, uh, hopefully get a submarine or something and go out there and actually uh, target these circles and find out a bit more about them. Um, there is a lot of work that goes on on the Northwest Shelf, but a lot of it is kept in-house. Um, so it's about sharing these data and, and sharing these, these video imagery and, and hopefully we can get some more information out of, out of what's already been collected as well. Is so- Todd, sorry, yeah. now that you've like by default become a um, pufferfish specialist, um, there's like several species of them around and like I was just thinking like the local one here there's a smooth sort of puffer fish that will bury itself in the sand and sort of remain hidden are there anything are there any species that do stuff that's maybe not quite as exciting as the circles but they do similar sort of stuff with sediment um definitely animals do do some crazy things with sediment not just fish but but invertebrates and burrowing invertebrates are really cool. Some of the shapes that they make as they um, spit out sand is, is really interesting. Uh, I love I love the little puffers. We get them in the river down here in Perth, um, which we dive in. And you're right, they do hide in the sand. And going for night dives in the river, you just see all these eyes poking up at you and you get a scratch on the head. But... Yeah, that, I guess that's the other thing as well, is that you create this intrigue in the public and there's, there's so many amazing things that are happening out there in the marine environment and we just don't know. We're still discovering things. That, um, yeah, going on for going for a dive anyway, you, behaviour of animals is, is intriguing to me as well. It's incredibly interesting. Todd, absolutely fantastic speaking with you. Um, we have to move on, but look, really wonderful. And can you please keep in touch with us about what happens next? Because... Uh, I know I, for one, am going to be really, really hoping with, you know, everything crossed that this is a brand new species and uh, and we have something to, to celebrate. Uh, I suspect we probably will. So can you keep in touch with us, please? It'd be great. We'll do. And if anyone's listening that's got a big submarine, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Cool. Thanks very much. Thanks, Todd. Have a great day. We'll Bye. catch you soon, hopefully. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Todd Bond there from the University of Western Australia's Oceans Institute and also the Australian Institute of Marine Sciences and absolutely fantastic research that just goes to show, Kate, just when we think we know everything, what well, we
never think that, do we? That's why we're here. But um, yeah, it's really great. All right, nine forty nine. You're listening to Radio Marinara. A quick. Uh, oh, we've had a subscriber, so I need to mention uh, Tracy Rose from Janjuk. Thank you, Tracy, and um, she has subscribed to Still Here. Wonderful program with uh, Neil Morris and Paul Gorry um, on at one o'clock every Sunday. So make sure you. Uh, I know she'll be listening. I'll be listening too, and make sure you listen to that great program. Uh, all right, let's uh, and yes. Uh, rrr.org.au if you want to get a fish name for the 2020 Radiothon this is pretty much your last chance oh here we go I didn't give you your fish name Tracy you're the uh, vaccination trial variegated limpet and uh, Andrew Young from Collingwood has just renewed as well thank you Andrew to Einstein and Gogo Dr Shane coming up at 11 o'clock and um, uh, Andrew I will make you the uh, remdesivir whale lungworm that's from um, one of Dave Donnelly's names (laughs) left over and uh yes rrr.org.au yeah in the next sort of few minutes all right andrea mcglushin's just subscribed thanks andrea from kingsville she's passionate thanks andrea we're passionate about you she says thanks radio marinara einstein and gogo and radiotherapy you are my sunday morning staples thank you so much you can be a uh quarantini queen scallop Regal, regal name for you, Andrea, as rightly deserved. Good morning, Jeff Maynard. Good morning, Bron. How are you? Great, thank you. How are you? I'm groovy, Bron. Um, <laughs> I've, I've spent the week watching 60s uh, beach party movies and I know Melbourne's been a bit bummed out because the uh, lockdown has been a real drag, uh, but I figured it was time to have a bit of a party at home and uh, I've got games, I've got activities, I've got music, uh, all sorts of good stuff so you can have a, a beach party at home in, in lockdown. So get ready, get the groove on. Um yeah, first of all, look, I've, I've got some ideas, but we, we've got to actually go through some rules because uh, I found out watching all these sort of 60s hot rods going around with people with funny hair and things, um, uh, they're very good at social distancing because you have a lot of healthy, energetic 16 to 20-year-old young people uh, in very close proximity without a lot of clothes on, uh, and they maintain social distance really well. So I found a scene in a movie where uh, we get some of the rules. All the all the girls, it's at night after they've been surfing all day, all the girls are in their little negligees with bouffant hair, and the guys are running around with no shirts on. Uh, but they make sure there's no what they call, I'm not sure what it is, hanky-panky, uh, because they put a chain across the middle of the house and they tell the guys to stay on one side and the girls to stay on the other, and it seems to work. Let's have a listen to track number one, Bron. Can a gang of kids of both sexes coexist in one beach house without hanky-panky? We sleep in there, you sleep in the bedroom. In between, the iron curtain. Now, anyone of either sex who crosses it before breakfast, out. Out? Man, they're so far out, they're really in. You just wouldn't believe the things these curvy Malibutis do to their servant boyfriend. Uh-huh. Hanky-panky! Thank you, thank you. So they are very good at social distancing, and I think there's a lesson there for all of us. Um, Anyway, look, I do have a game for people to play at home, a beach party game. Uh, All you need is a beach blanket, and I'm kind of assuming a large beach towel will be okay. Um, I don't quite understand the game. I'll I'll read you the rules. Um, The rules are basically when a laddie meets a lassie and he asks for a kiss, 
if he finds the Latin sassy right blanket wrong miss. Now, I don't know what all that means. I've probably, under, I've probably undersold it a little bit. So uh, it's a lot more fun when Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello explain the rules. So let them explain the rules in track two, please. Every line and every lassie Looking smart and looking classy Yeah, they're learning the score I called it. I called it at the start of the show. Sorry. Oh, you're so clever. Little yeah. moment of smile. Well, what else was it going to be? That's awesome. How cute. Uh- it, it, it is. Now, look, I've got an activity because when I was watching the movies, I don't sort of look at the people up the front sort of singing. I always like to look at the people in the background, the little extras in the movie and see what they're doing. And I saw a cop, couple in one movie. She was in a bikini and he wore his shorts and he had this sort of goofy hat on. And they literally spent an hour and a half standing about two metres apart from each other on the sand tossing a beach ball back and forth. And that's all they did for an hour and a half. And I thought, well, they're obviously having fun. Maybe maybe there's a lesson there for us at home. We just toss a beach ball back and forth. Or even if you're living on your own, just toss it against the wall and catch it for an hour and a half. Um, but I think the important thing is to have some music. So I've got a little bit of music to put behind sort of while you stand at home, throw a ball around. Um, and there's a hidden message in the music for people in lockdown. So see if you can figure out what it is. Take track three, please, Bron. I can't get it. What is it? Oh, well, the message, because we've all been overusing the Uber Eats guys. We're wearing out <laughs> yeah, the tyres right. on their little motorcycles, and we have to remember to eat properly, so don't forget the fresh fruit and vegetables. <laughs> we, we should all, you should be a pineapple princess, Brian, and, and make sure <laughs> keep up your fresh fruit and all those things and stop getting all the, um, all, all the Uber Eats. Excellent. Uh, We're uh, rapidly running out of time, Jeff. We've got one last track, I believe. Uh, the, the final lesson is some music, and all these movies had some people come on. They'd all be uh, big. So, look, we've got the Supremes singing Beach Ball in the final track. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.